Hey everyone, welcome to the show. You're listening to Can I, the Latchel podcast named for the acronym Continuous and Never Ending Improvement. At Latchel, we have a deep belief that you can't get better by staying the same. And our podcast is here to give you the tools and resources you need to achieve healthy growth. As a Y Combinator backed company, we know what it takes to have rapid, accelerated growth, and we want to pass our learnings along to you. At Latchel, we help property managers and landlords grow and scale by taking over 24-7 maintenance operations. We've developed an innovative mix of software and on-demand support to help do that. Each week on this show, we bring on industry experts and we dive into the topics that'll help you shape your business. Welcome to the show. Let's get going. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this session of the Latchell Property Management Podcast. I'm Ethan Lieber, the CEO of Latchell, and I'm here with our guest today, Jordan Mula, the co-founder and CEO of LeadSimple. They're a specialized lead management system designed to help small businesses automate sales process and close more deals. And they're moving into more open process, uh, configuration process workflows. So we'll talk about that. And uh, Jordan also has a long career in growth strategy. He's a co-founder of Profit Coach, which is a company focused on helping property management entrepreneurs identify key profit drivers in their business to take the guesswork out of growing. So today we're going to talk about automating lead gen processes, automating operational processes, all the leverage, max growth potential. Welcome to the show, Jordan. Shoot, glad to be here, my man. Uh, so maybe you could start us off, give our listeners a little bit of background about you, and maybe just start with like that elevator pitch of Lead Simple and what you guys focus on for PM companies. Yeah, so for the longest time, Lead Simple has been solved, focused on solving sales and marketing challenges and helping companies operationalize sales and marketing. They tend to be ops focused and really have very little process and structure around the sales and marketing functions. And we help build that process, help automate, streamline that process so that there's more discipline on the sales and marketing side of the business. As of about two years ago, we pivoted into workflow operational processes. So after you close a new deal and you close some business, you can onboard the owner, onboard the property, begin the, the, the process of um, doing a lease up, et cetera. All of that stuff can now be done inside of Lead Simple. And so we're full steam ahead on workflow automation. How did you know this was a problem? How, how did you even get into this? I always follow the problem. I care more about the problem than the solution. That started off when we were doing lead gen in the industry. I did that for about two years, got out of it because I didn't like the search volatility associated with lead gen. But we were sending people owner leads and they would say, the leads are no good, the leads are no good. We did some research and we realized that on average, people were taking about 48 hours to call a new lead back, following up 1.5 times. And so there was a problem. So we chose to make it our business to help them close the deals. Therefore, we built Lead Simple, did that for a while, realized that a lot of folks didn't have a framework or a concept for sales marketing. So we started an event like PM Grow, realized you could grow and not make any money. So we started Profit Coach. It's always just kind of following the problem for me. Hmm. Maybe we can, uh, this is maybe not like on track with just sort of a, a linear progression of like how you got into this and how your career has spanned. But maybe you can kind of give us a quick example just to sort of solidify this in our listeners' minds of, you know, they're all running management companies and they're probably sitting there thinking like, okay, I get it. Like the process of, you know, getting an, an owner interested and bringing them through the sale and then onboarding them. Yeah, it's this process, but like, How's Lead Simple actually going to help me with that? How are the different process things you guys do even going to matter? Yeah, so the first, I'd say the first thing is just it is helping you get clear on what the process should be. So we're not trying to cram technology. When I think what technology is or writing software, it's kind of like using concrete or cement. It's really good if that is where the cement or the concrete should go. And it's kind of horrific if that wasn't where it was intended to go. 
So the first thing we do is have a broad conversation about your systems, about your processes. The fact that we're working with hundreds of companies to do this gives us a pretty high level view of thinking about system design, about having a conversation with you about where you're at, where your staff is at relative to thinking as system design people, and then how that shows up and how, how your existing processes function today having a conversation to optimize that. Once we're on the same page about what's gonna be best, what's gonna drive thoroughput, what's gonna drive the organizational operational outcomes you want that are typically related to thoroughput, error reduction, uh, revenue improvement, et cetera, then the tech comes in and, and streamlines and that's where we kind of uh, codify those, those best practices. Are there certain like indicators that a property manager could look at to to know that hey now would be the right time for me to go talk to jordan i think the general indicator would be that you're feeling a real tension between wanting to grow but knowing in your gut that things are going to stop blowing going to start blowing up that there's some real fragility and there's just a sense that there's there are unforced errors happening in the business that if you were there and if you could clone yourself and there was 10 of you wouldn't happen. But given that that's not realistic, the next best thing is to put your likeness through your thinking codified in systems and process. And when that isn't there, it's just, it's a tough row to hoe. So you gotta, you gotta step back and, and make the time. I feel like there's maybe like two parts to this, right? Which is like, you, you could use the, the question and I've, I've used this before at like NARPM conferences and things like that, where I'll ask folks, if your business doubled tomorrow, if nothing else changes, but all of a sudden tomorrow you have twice as many doors you're managing, like what in your business breaks? Uh, I find that question can sometimes like get the gears working. The first half of it would be even like, how do you even make it feasible for me to double my door count? Mm -hmm. Do you guys tackle both problems? Yeah, we do focus on both problems. As you say that, what comes to mind for me is that it's easy to go down to, well, leasing would break, maintenance would break. What I find like systemically is that most things that would break are, uh, it's people related because it, it is people. It's like a bunch of bodies glued together. The metaphor that comes to mind for me is that when you're trying to move faster, like you have a load behind you, think of your business as like a tractor, it's trying to carry load. You want to add more load. You want to pull even more. And so in your pursuit of forward movement, you could improve the horsepower of the tractor, or you can add people in front of the tractor to pull the tractor like sled dogs. Most people as they expand capacity are doing so through brute force, as opposed to getting the leverage that can happen with systems and technology. So as you put more load on the system, the things that tend to break are very much the people related stuff where the mind simply cannot expand to, to deal with the, the expanding complexity. That's the metaphor for me is like the idea that a, a small business is a scaled down version of a large business is the fundamental error that most business operators make my bigger business my 300 unit business at 3000 units will just be proportionately larger as opposed to saying it will be dramatically exponentially more complicated and if i'm if i'm currently making my current level of investment in infrastructure at that that that, that level of investment won't scale does that make sense you follow me yeah i mean the I think so. The way I'm hearing you is, um, let's say you're operating a hundred doors. Mm -hmm. You're probably operating in a pretty scrappy way. You might not even need processes around certain things. It's a lot of grit. Mm -hmm. Yes. I was just talking to someone earlier today. I'm like, man, property management, like you have to be top 95th percentile of grit to be able to do property management, especially at that stage. Right. So you're hustling. Mm -hmm you're pushing things forward, you're brute forcing a lot. And that if you think about growing to say a thousand units and you think of it as just like, oh, you're just proportionally increasing everything, that things start falling apart because you can't run a thousand unit with your, the entrepreneur's grit alone. You can with a hundred, but you can't with a thousand. And that means processes need to change. The mental mm -hmm. models behind how you do certain pieces of work need to change and they need to become more systematized, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think there's like a weird dichotomy here. And I think you're one of the people that will that will get this more than most. At 100 units, in a weird way, you're embracing maybe the peak level of complexity that you ever hope to do. So the level of complexity, when I have no systems, no process, I'm just accessing the mind of the single person where every department is in my brain, it's insane levels of, of complexity. That would never scale. So to, to scale, you have to do two things. You have to streamline you have to get rid of edge cases. You have to use policy to make simple framework-based decisions. Process is not a substitute for policy. And you're the guy that can comment on this because one of the things I've always found interesting about your offering and the space that you've played in is that maintenance is intrinsically so difficult. It's easy to take pot shots when things don't go, don't go wrong. But what I find with maintenance in particular is that maintenance is not a monolith. And if you treat it as such, you will fail. I.e., if you try to send or outsource all of your maintenance stuff without any consideration of the different types of maintenance work, some of which lend themselves well to be outsourced and others, you knew that, that that crazy, insane, complex task wasn't likely to get done well. That's an example of like the, the nuance that has to be kind of appreciated with it. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I think the reason maintenance uh, scares a lot of companies away from engaging in, and it can be the most difficult thing a manager tries to figure out as they're building processes, like there's such a variety, there's such a wide scope. Um, we were breaking down uh, sort of customer profiles yesterday. These are lateral customer profiles we're breaking mm -hmm. down. And there's just from the top level combinations of policy mm -hmm. and how maintenance is handled you end up with over 48 different co like process combinations. And this mm. is just for the most basic forms of maintenance policy. Mm -hmm. Now, the crazy thing is, and I'm sure you do a lot of work with managers that are, you know, at hundred, you know, doors, maybe even 50 doors looking to scale up to a few hundred or thousands where mm -hmm. you're an entrepreneur, you're struggling, you're bringing in companies, you're taking every lead you can get, you're closing them best you can. And, you know, fast forward six months, you've got like a hundred doors with like 300 different policies based on the unique oh. door. And you're like, how do you build a company around that? So how do you work with these types of, you know, smaller companies that are like growth minded? They want to go from 50 doors to a thousand. Mm -hmm. How do you get in there and help them build this policy? Because that sounds like a lot more than just software. Yeah, it totally is. You know, I'd say the dichotomy here, Ethan, is that the human mind, the human will requires a certain level of delusion in order to get in the game, right? Like if you knew how hard it was going to be at the outside, you wouldn't have done it. At least that's my experience. Mm. And so frequently people do things that won't scale in order to get to 100, 200 units. And at some point along the way, they get stuck. Like I'll talk to people at 300 units and they're like, I don't know how to grow my business. And my question is, well, how'd you get the first 300 doors? And the answer is I did things that I'm no longer willing to do. I did some scrappy, mm. ugly kind of stuff. And I, I would prefer not to do that. I'm busy. I kind of can't do that. And furthermore, I'm dealing with the, um, what we call this? It's like, there's an analog to technical debt. You know what technical debt is. There's organizational sure. debt that is derivative of my previous low quality decisions, particularly with policy. I took on a bunch of crap units. I don't make any money on a lot of them, which means they take my capacity, but I get no yield. I get no cash flow to improve the quality of my services. So people get stuck and there's a natural reset around 200, 300 units. And it, it keeps happening where you gotta scrub the barnacles off. You gotta get rid of the bottom tier class C owners, class C properties. You gotta do some fee maxing. So there's a natural kind of ebb and flow. And I think that's just a part of business. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that as you're scaling up too, and you hit these different checkpoints, you start becoming a different kind of company too. Um, I think along with that comes the adoption of, you know, not only different policies, but probably different technologies. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm curious in your perspective too on, uh, you know, what happened with coronavirus and everything kind of going virtual, it seems like there was this huge adoption of technology platforms and uh, property management and other other parts of real estate, like prop tech in general is like exploding. I think if you look at like some of the VC funding, 
Watchel included in here over the last two years, it's exploded for prop tech. Um, I, I'm curious, has that changed what you're seeing happen it, among property managers looking to grow? Are there different forms of technology they're adopting? And how, how does Lead Simple kind of play into that? Yeah, so my fundamental vision here is that we're seeing maybe three distinct epochs of property management. One was totally old school, the paper world. That has really largely kind of been, been killed. The second generation wave was technology to enhance and extend the way business has already been done. And then a third wave of kind of transforming the way that the work is actually done. And I think the best way to reference this is technology solutions that are helpful and useful, but just complicated enough for a certain class of owners, business owners or team members to see the potential, but they're intimidated because their identity informs them that that's, that shouldn't be their job. The real work of property management is over here. I'm being asked to learn this technology and I just, I'm not quite there. I haven't shifted my identity to believe that building the rails upon which the work flows in a digital first manner is my actual job. People coming into the business now that will be ramped up five to 10 years from now, I will. I believe that will be inverted and I believe that will be the norm. So we're talking about a no code, low code paradigm. We're not talking about programming, but we're talking about uh, stitching different tools together to build those workflows. And again, just the, the rails of how the work flows through the organization is supposed to be focusing on individual tasks primarily. So this is like, I, I'm kind of glad you uh, talked about this difference between like how the property, the property manager's identity and how the job itself has to be different for the property managers to succeed going forward. Um, yeah, I think the old school way to look at this, just like a few years ago, when we started Latchley, you know, talking to a ton of property managers, a lot of property managers said, well, you know, why would I have any automation or workflows with maintenance? My job is maintenance, to which like the, my response is like, really? You're, the property manager's job is maintenance coordination? That sounds like a job of a maintenance coordinator, not a property manager. Like whose job is it to increase the value of the asset? And a lot of property managers would say, my job's increasing value of the asset. So my owners are making more money every month. And mm. the property investors I work with are going to sell that home at higher values or, or whatever, right? It, and thinking about like property managers that want to scale, they want to grow, they want to be forward looking, they want to build high value. What do you think they should be looking at their job as? What is the right job of the property manager? Oh, wow, man, you hit me with the deep one there. I, I fundamentally agree and believe with what you said previously. That is to say that there is a hierarchy, there's a ladder of value, and the lower you sit, the more of a commodity you are. And you know how much of a commodity you are based on what your sales conversations look like. If you find yourself in a constant bitch and complaint that people only want to talk to you about price or only want you to ask menial things or don't appreciate what you do. If you want to know why it's happening, look in the mirror. The positioning, the conversation that you are entertaining is derivative of and feeds into how people view you. So I know in my business, for example, I can talk about the technology. It's cool. It's interesting. It's great tech. That is not the highest and best conversational use of my time. I would rather have a conversation that addresses the deepest felt needs of my customers and let things flow down through the logical implications around technology. Same thing for property managers. So talking about it in terms of it being an asset, addressing people as an investor rather than an owner, talking about a resident instead of a tenant. There's a way to elevate the conversation to align to and get curious about the deepest felt need of your customers. And people push back and they say, but Jordan, they're not investors. They're accidental. I'm in California. They're never going to buy more than one property. Maybe, you know, maybe, but maybe that's just a story you're telling yourself because you're not interested in accruing the skills and going through the necessary work to facilitate that bigger conversation. And if not, my biggest question is, is why? I don't know about you, Ethan, but what gives me stamina in my work being in my late thirties is not just, it's not Red Bull anymore. That's not cutting it. Like I, I need to have some meaning in my work. And so the yeah. quality, the depth in my conversation 
which is related to the significance of the outcome that I'm trying to facilitate, that gives me stamina. That takes me to a place of creativity. So I don't know why anybody wouldn't do that if they have the choice and the option to do so. And I believe that the vast majority of property managers uh, do. And if you're not capable of, of doing that, that's a, it's a slog, man. It's a slog to know your commodity and to just have better systems and better sales and marketing. You know, you can have, you can layer those things on top of selling a commodity, but that's, that's headwinds instead of tailwinds in my experience. Are, are there certain like competitive advantages your customers have that are sort of fueling their growth? Definitely. I'd say broadly speaking, the advantages that my customers have and those that are in earshot of me is a greater orientation on, on the unit economics, the strength of the business, not only as it relates to the benefit for them, but the benefit that it creates for the customer. And the stronger that your business model is, the more value, value you're capable of creating and the more value that you're cap capable of capturing. Now, if you want to take it lower than that, having a streamlined operationalized sales and marketing function where you understand sales and marketing, it's a distinct skill set that has nothing to do with property management. I mean, there's some level, something in the middle of the Venn diagram, but for the most part, it's a, a distinct skill set. So having that conversation, reading some resources, if somebody's listened to my podcast, if they've read our sales course, and then uh, codifying that in the software, I think that's a value. Same thing with building out the mm -hmm. systems in the software. But I, I think most of it for me comes down to the orientation of the brand and the conversation that we're, we're having. I'd like to say that that's the biggest impact we're making. And I don't say that to diminish product. I just know as a software guy and Ethan, I, I think you can relate to this, that saying that we have more features than Salesforce, like it's, it's not really interesting to me. There's a lot of, there's a lot of different softwares that you can use to get the job done, but it's the orientation of the entrepreneur wielding the software that determines the quality of the outcomes derivative of the software. I found too that whether it's a, if it's a software, you can stick to features, but features don't tell the user or the customer where things are heading. That's a, that's a brand choice. And it's probably the same for a property manager. You can tell an investor, you know, accident landlord, if you work with them about all the features your company offers, but that's not exciting. What's going to excite them is understanding more about the deeper direction you're heading as a management firm. Mm. You, you said, you know, why, what energizes you? Like, why do you even do this? Um, I, I do want to ask a question about the, the unit economics thing mm -hmm. you talked about as a competitive Please. advantage. But before I do that, I am curious, you personally, Jordan, like what sort of, what drives you to wake up every morning to work on Lead Simple? Like what's the internal thing that's exciting you and driving you and that, that, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to say mission because it just feels kind of contrived to talk about like mission as part of the brand. But, you know, in this case, I think it kind of works. What, what is like the mission there that's exciting you? Yeah, we want to help people achieve more than they ever thought possible. Really high level. That's what it is. It's aspirational. It's fluffy. But I think in practice, if I connect it to outcomes for me, it looks like attacking hard problems that I'm confident are winnable, solvable problems. There are some unsolvable problems. I don't want to get hooked by those just because they're hard. And what that does for me is it ensures that I'm working on something uh, of relevance and that's going to call a lot out of me and that the return will be significant. And there's the, the possibility of failure and the thrill of the possibility of failure that, that gets me out of bed, particularly when it's tied to a big outcome. But holistically, man, I just want to work on making people's lives better and, and helping them dream bigger than they where they were at before they met me. Awesome. So help people dream bigger, get bigger um, to do it. We've talked a little bit about having that kind of competitive edge, that that drive, the advantage you get from platforms like Lead Simple. You talked about how your customers the competitive edge they have is unit economics. And when I hear that, what I'm, what I'm thinking and tell me if I'm wrong is 
there's sort of the operational unit economics and the sales unit economics. And the sales unit economics is something to do with how much does it cost me to get a unit? Mm-hmm. When do I make my money back on that unit? Is that efficient? And then the operational unit economics are like, how much money am I spending to run my service? And how much money am I making from the service? I now have a profit margin, so to speak, or a gross profit margin. Um, in that vein, I'm wondering, are there like certain uh, KPIs or, or metrics that are vital for property managers to track to measure their success? And, and maybe how does Lead Simple kind of facilitate tracking those? Sure. Let's start on the growth side. You always have to understand the qualitative and the quantitative. The quantitative, maybe just raw volume. You want to add 300 doors, you know, have a churn rate. You want to add 100 doors this year, you already have 100 doors. You know, you have an annual churn rate of 20%. So therefore, you need 120 doors to actually get to that 200 mark. 120 doors, where is that going to come from? Divide by 12, that's 10 doors per unit on a monthly basis. That's your benchmark. So having some basic, something you're, you're hitting for and kind of benchmarking against that. But then on a monthly basis, the qualitative side would be your conversion rate. Your conversion rate is really important because it's going to determine your cost per lead and ultimately your customer acquisition cost. Let's say you're your average PM where you don't have the operational functions of sales and marketing really, really built out. Maybe you have a BDM, but you're relying on paid channels for doing marketing. You're doing a bit of pay-per-click. Maybe you're doing some mailers, um, a host of different things where you really are going to live or die based on the yield of these leads and your cost per lead, which is derivative of your overall marketing spend plus your conversion rate, that is going to determine what spaces you can play in. There are some folks that can engage in higher volume uh, and more expensive channels because they have a really high conversion rate. So they're able to compress their cost per lead. All of those kinds of considerations, let's roll it up to customer acquisition costs, which your customer acquisition costs, what you can afford to spend is a function of your customer lifetime profit, right? You can't spend $1,000 to uh, as a customer acquisition cost if your customer lifetime profit is $999. All of that stuff frames how we think about sales and marketing, SEO, pay-per-click, blah, blah, blah. I really am not interested in talking about any of that if we don't have some basic parameters to box in and measure the scope of the broad conversation. Once those parameters are in place, yeah, let's talk channel strategies. But if we go straight to channel strategies, it's a fool's errand. And I just, I've seen so much heartbreak um, in that area. That's that's on the the sales and marketing side. Um, Before we get to the ops side, uh, which is gonna be about like onboarding, launch, retent, all that stuff. Um, when your customers come to you, and I know you kind of go through some consultative kind of efforts with them before just throwing them on your platform, because sure. um, I'm sure everyone would come in confused and drowning from some of the complexity, maybe. But I'm wondering how how many of your customers already know this these data points before they come to you? You know, I don't know point. It's something below 1%, maybe 0.025%. So for anyone listening to this, whose eyes are rolling to the back of their head, thinking, what did I just get myself into? They're not alone. Oh, absolutely. I I can think of one person, maybe two, maybe two people in my career, Ethan, that had this information freely available the first time that I met them. But yeah, and I'm talking fast and it sounds like a lot. If you, but if we slow down the conversation, your customer acquisition cost is everything that you spent in terms of labor and advertising divided by the number of customers that you got. Your customer acquisition cost cannot be higher than your customer lifetime profit. That's like the absolute worst case scenario. And realistically, your customer acquisition cost is something you want to you want to compress as low as possible. So if you took nothing else from this podcast other than measuring your customer acquisition cost on a per channel basis and you graded all marketing and advertising spend based on what the cost was for the the deals that came from that channel you'd have a huge leg up over most of the industry so maybe that's one very practical takeaway from things. is there a um i don't want to go too deep into this so I'll, I'll just ask one specific question and then we can move on to the more like ops unit economics 
but are there is there like a good ratio of like here's what my acquisition cost should be compared to you know my lifetime value from a customer like how much money i'll make from them before they might leave yeah the best ratio that i can offer here uh, the best ratios in general i would say come from SaaS, um and that's just because SaaS has taken the time to actually look at these things so i would say if your customer excuse me if your customer acquisition cost is one-fifth of your customer lifetime revenue um you know you're probably within the realm of reason i i'd say in general something below a thousand but again you really got to measure your customer lifetime profit maybe let maybe let's settle on this and this is something i think you can appreciate your time to payback determines when you spend a dollar on advertising and it results in you getting a customer at some point that customer will kick off enough profit for you to get your dollar back to be redeployed to reload the cannon per se so time to payback probably has the most dramatic implications of your ability to recycle the money to grow. And if you can't recycle the money, then you have to take on funding or debt or some something from outside the organization to keep growing. So time to pay back time frame of less than 12 months is probably the thing that I would um, be watching as the most practical consideration. That makes sense. That's a good way to describe it. Are, are you familiar with? Uh, I, I'm sure you're familiar with Renner's Warehouse. Um, I don't Brent know. Hayden. He was he was one of the two people I mentioned. He was Brent okay. Hayden who started it was one of the two people that knew his customer acquisition cost down to the penny and blew my mind. <laughs> so I I don't know. I talked. I I didn't talk to Brent. I talked to someone else at Renner's Warehouse a long time ago, and if memory serves me right. I think their payback period was like 16 months. I don't know if that rings a bell for you. And I don't, I don't know if that's, if that's kind of typical or if maybe they were working on it. Maybe that's why they came to you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, so there's the franchisors and the franchisees. They don't franchise anymore, but they used to, I don't know which side of that you were, you were talking to. Um, but time to pay back is so important because if your time to pay back is in excess of a year or less than a year it, it just directly impacts the amount of cash that you have to have on hand to gain the customers that you want and, and time to pay back in my world is a function of, of gross profit the gross profit is what you have to use to actually repay the money that you initially spent um, so if anybody wants more on that you know feel free to send me an email you can google it but i find it's a really practical consideration this is maybe a good segue because if you're more efficient with the operation, yes, your margin is higher. You yes. make more profit per unit and mm -hmm. without getting more efficient on the sales side, you can actually get a faster payback period simply by being more efficient on kind of the cost of goods sold side because your gross margin yes. is higher, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, weird, Kind of weird segue, but you are absolutely right. You can hold your sales and marketing efficiency constant. You can improve your net operating income and therefore get more efficient, boosting the return time on your dollars. Profit yeah. improves everything. Um, so it's absolutely something that I feel fine being dogmatic about because door count just isn't enough. Like we've been talking door count, door count, door count, but door count doesn't improve your quality of life it doesn't improve the quality of the service you're you're able to provide profit is a, is a broadly cross-cutting consideration that just kind of makes everything better what are some of the success stories you have from your customers that like change hmm. that kind of profit margin or just amplify their profit well i'd say that we, i have the most uh direct access and i'm topically most focused on profit within the context of the work that we do at profit coach where we're in people's books we're doing coaching based on the PL. i think the biggest swing we ever saw is probably around 60 points not basis points like 60 absolute points now that in that case that was going from a negative value a meaningful negative value to a positive value mm -hmm. but in general the life cycle of working with the client over two to three years is a swing of somewhere within the range of 20 to 30 points 
of profit, which is just a life-changing outcome. And it happens slowly. The, the chart I'd love to see is like in 30 days, everything's better. Now, the reality is slowly but surely, rarely do we meet people that's like, absolutely, I'm firing everybody. I'm going to roll out a new PMA and a new lease in the next 30 days. People are slow. They want to take their time. They care about their staff. So it's a, it's a, you know, a point or two every month and a slow march to where they want to, to get, but it is holistic. Probably the, the in order of the consideration, we start by talking about revenue. Revenue makes everything better. So your unit economics and taking your, your revenue per unit on average, it's 164. We want to get north of 200. Um, next would be costs, the labor costs. Labor costs is the most correlative thing that we saw to profit when we did the NARPM accounting standards. That was by far, there were a lot of things that we thought would correlate. That was the only thing that just beautifully correlated was labor costs. So getting that down from on average. That's staff. basically what you're saying. Okay. So like, yeah, staff's going to be the biggest expense and the biggest driver of your costs. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's the biggest, biggest driver of profit. It's the biggest cost line item, but it's the biggest driver of profit. We, we have that yeah. conversation in terms of labor efficiency, which means W2 contractor, whatever, it all kind of rolls up to the same thing. But those are, uh, most folks don't have a benchmark. How many staff should they have? Or conversations like, how about this one, Ethan? How many properties should my property manager manage? I've been doing this a long time. I've worked really hard at questions like that. And the answer is, I don't know. I have no clue. But I can give you, I can give you context on um, labor efficiency, which, which relates to the overall percentage of top line that should be spent on labor. And when you work yeah. within the confines of caps, think of it as like a salary cap. It's like an NFL salary cap. When you work within those kinds of parameters, you get creative. You press back into the story of trying to solve everything by adding, throwing additional bodies in it. And so it's a really productive conversation. Is there like a um, good ratio or like a rule of thumb for how many dollars should I spend on labor for every dollar in revenue? Yeah, so we look at direct labor efficiency, which is effectively a measure of how many dollars of top line revenue is being kicked off for every labor that we're de deploying on staff. And we're looking for a, a, a DLER of 2.0 or greater. So for every that would, does that mean for every dollar I spend on staff, I should be at $2 or greater in revenue? So Correct. Sort of. Okay. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, I, I would encourage then anyone listening to go check your numbers. And if you're sub $2, I imagine they should definitely be scheduling a call with, with you. Yeah, for sure. With, I mean, I'm happy to chat informally. Profit Coach to Active does that coaching work. I mean, that's really a floor. We've seen folks push it a lot higher than that, but as a starting point, it's a floor. There's a whole world of conversation to be had around the PNL and the finance function of the business. And I think if people are going to take anything away, I would say, just bear in mind, it's great to have awesome service quality, but the thing that's going to correlate the most to financial and quality of life outcomes for you is to pay attention to the financial model of your business. If you don't understand that, if you're intimidated, buy it. I'm here to encourage you and tell you it's not a black box. It's not some fancy science. It's time, it's effort, and it's intentionality. I had a good friend of mine one time. I brought him a, a challenging, perplexing, perplexing question. And he asked me this question. He's like, well, have you spent any time thinking about it? And it blew my mind because Ethan, I hadn't. I was being avoidant with it. Mm. The question it felt like too much, too complex. And so I'm trying to offload to ask my friend his opinion. And his feedback was like, you're a pretty smart guy. Like, how about you take six or eight hours and just focus on it? The financial modeling, like that's that. It's, it's astronomically disproportionately more rewarding than you focusing on just about anywhere else in the business, second only to maybe, you know, leadership. Uh, but it tends to get neglected. I want to uh, pinpoint on something that I'm really curious about, and I think listeners will be, they might not. So if anyone listening isn't interested in this, I apologize, but I have to ask you because I'm really interested. You just made a comment about like service quality and how that interplays with like the labor costs and creating profitability and efficiency. Mm -hmm. I am curious, is there like a, 
a correlation of service quality to investors mm. and to residents in relation to profitability? Yeah, I, I think um, I think the way to frame that is that in general, the more rework that you're doing, in general, the more weight, the more perception of waste on behalf of your clients, the more sensitivity there is that either you're not doing your job or you are doing your job and your job is to squeeze them for as much money as possible. People are aware of and sensitive of these costs. And so getting ahead of those costs, doing preventative maintenance, I think it's a really, really big deal. But the, the thing I wanted to say, Ethan, with you in particular that, that comes to mind for me is when you're thinking about these different functions of the business and a second ago, I'm like, hey, you should be focused on finance. Why aren't you? Cognitive bandwidth is the second scarcest resource in any organization. It's the most precious, finite resource. My, my ability to think, dedicated thinking time. The only thing that is more scarce than that is emotional bandwidth. Most of us can only afford to have like one you know, bad thing happen per day before we're just, we're tapped out, we're fried. So when you're thinking about optimizing your business, streamlining and finding a way to put distance between you and the things that are like that are peak stress, the stuff that just mushrooms, there's massive, massive value um, in that. I found for me solving for those th those emotional pain points in the business is is also hugely re rewarding. Yeah, and if an entrepreneur is feeling better, can have more focus, the business itself is going to do better. The, yep. the unseen maintenance is part of it. I mean, it's all, it's an unseen thing in the PNL though, right? You can look at like all the output from the financial numbers, but that doesn't tell you how burnt out an owner is going to be because they're the, you know, I mean, a business owner or the entrepreneur doesn't tell you how burnt out they might be from just things that break, even if the PNL looks good. Absolutely. It's the reason why when you're looking at your client list, you get your, you're at that point where you need to reset two, 300 doors, seven, 800 doors, and you're stacking your clients based on what you're making per client. You then have to overlay. You can do that by yourself. You then have to overlay with your staff point to me, the people that are most difficult rank by just raw difficultness. It's not volume of tickets. It's who screams at you, who is condescending, who is abusive to you get rid of those people and it doesn't matter what what you're making it's just that that stuff is toxic and it has a it has a dis an exponentially disproportionate tax on your ability to think and and operate that you just can't be put in a spreadsheet when you're looking at uh i mean you're looking at hundreds of management companies all the time you you have data on so many different management companies and you're seeing the trends in the industry i i know uh, profit margin on average across management companies used to be around like 6%. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering what well, kind of two part question is that increasing or maybe that's still the average. And for the ones that do significantly better, are you seeing commonalities in policies they implement softwares they implement or certain trends in the way they handle their business that are making them more profitable? <laughs> Mm, yeah, man, that's a really great question. I would say two things happen. That 6% number for me came from the original Arkham Accounting Standard benchmarking study that we did. And a weird thing happened. There's something called the Hartford Law, which is to say that KPI is worthless once it's established because people will game for it. And what that means for me is that our sample set has actually become fairly polluted because we've actively coached these people. So the sample set that I'm looking at is disproportionately worked. I, I wish the entire industry looked like that, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't. We're looking to do an update on the NARPM accounting standards, and that hopefully will give us access to a better uh, a better cross section of the industry as a whole. But I don't I don't know if the six percent has moved or not. Uh, why why, uh, why game it? Why hack it? What what does an entrepreneur get out of that? Well, when I, when I say game, and I just mean any metric that you're now, any metric that you're now observing that you weren't before, there's the phenomenon of um, extra attention being paid to it to the degree mm -hmm. that it, it generates some, some unnatural outcomes. But of course, every, yeah. everybody should be focused. I think the common patterns answer would be less around how you run your business. I see all, I was just with a million dollar 
club, one of the mastermind groups that I host for Profit Coach recently. And the common patterns for me were around thinking, accountability. They blame themselves. They're quick to ask on act on staff considerations. They don't put up with, uh, they, they're less frequent to compromise their values. And they realize that it's only complex when you compromise. That's a quote from my friend, Steve Wealthy. I think it's leadership stuff that is in, that is more in common than any of the specifics of how they run their business, even though, yeah, the underlying economic profile, they, they, they know their DLER number, they understand their growth model, um, they have a forecast, they, they have a forecast, I can say that 10 times. They know where they're headed financially, like there's some stuff in common, but a lot of it really, I think is just like the thinking of being a winner, which is you invest in yourself and you view the gray matter between your ears as the most determinative outcome as opposed to this external stuff outside of you. The people that need coaching and help and advice the most have the least patience and budget and openness to that. The people that seemingly need it the least, they over-index on self-improvement, self-development and outside help. Mm. I think we can explore the inverse of that question which is, you know, it doesn't matter how smart you are, how amazing lead simple is, how amazing profit coach is, folks will come in that you just can't help no matter what. Mm -hmm. um, what are sort of the habits or, or red flags and mindset that are sort of like that you would caution listeners like, hey, if, if you're seeing this in you or your staff, like that's something you got to work on? Hmm. I'd say a lack of consideration. When you hear things you disagree with, the cheap answer is to say, I disagree, but certainty is the opposite of wonder and curiosity. So one common characteristic of the less successful is they have a degree of certainty that is unearned. It's more connected to their identity and their narrative rather than the rigor that they've done to analyze and come to, to well-trodden conclusions. So they're just kind of, they jump to certainty about, well, we can't do it this way. This can't change. They're self-justifying and self-affirming of the results that they say that they don't want. And so they keep earning them over and over again. Is there like a, um, you, you, I think there, you, you're always hearing sort of like these opposing sides of like, you know, these like entrepreneurship tropes, like uh, you've got this, like what you just said, right? Like not that what you just said. Is totally, right, totally. Right? Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. The flip side though, is like, go with your gut and like entrepreneurs hear this all the time. You got to go with your gut. Yeah. But like, what if your gut is saying, no, that's not right. Even though you don't have, you haven't earned the right to say, no, that's not right. How do you balance that? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. You know, I, I, um, I don't know what you're looking for there, but I would say I do believe in boundaring yourself. I do have appreciation for the work of people like Brene Brown. And I do think that your gut does matter, but I think you should also take into consideration of the results that your gut has produced thus far. I would say I'm, I operate partly on gut, but also on values. Your values are the fundamental thing you don't want to compromise. If something feels wrong to you, then, then that's the time to say no. But if somebody's making a suggestion about finances or that if you roll out a new PMA, this percentage of people are going to cancel versus not, you know, with that stuff, you got to stay pretty, pretty open and loose. Yeah, that makes sense. I like that distinction of tying the gut to what's value driven, what's ethics driven, yes, what feels yes. right or wrong. Mm -hmm like with your conscious versus like mm -hmm. with something that's more or less you could burn down to a, a quick experiment, you know, mm -hmm. to figure out if it's right or wrong. That makes a lot of sense to me. Amen. Um, okay. So uh, moving on here uh, and we only got a few minutes left. So we'll, we'll head into wrap up it in, in a little bit here. Um, are there any like cutting edge trends that you're seeing happening that, you know, just a few property managers are starting to latch on to now that you think would be good, maybe not to jump on the bandwagon quite yet. Maybe they're too early uh, or maybe they're not, but things that most managers haven't looked at yet, they're maybe not implementing yet that they should at least be paying attention to. 
Uh, for me, that looks like system design, system thinking. The, what I mentioned way back earlier in the interview about folks having somebody in their organization who on their job description, not as a add-on, not in the evenings and weekends, but their job is to define how work should flow through the organization at a systems level that is fundamentally technology agnostic. And then making sure that person has the skills, the oversight, the accountability, and the authority to push that, that perspective that aligns with the values of the organization, mm. make sure that stuff is codified and the organization is following through on that. A lot of owners get enamored, they go to a conference, they get excited about technology as a very broad concept, but they don't have the skills to push outcomes into the organization. Um, and so that's a, that, it's a new skill set in the same way that sales and marketing was a distinct skill set. It, it's a new yeah. skill set that needs to be cultivated rewarded and, and pushed into the organization. Is this something the owner of the business should be doing? Is this like a new role that business owners should be looking to bring into their companies or something else? Hey, you know, if you're the owner that, that wants to do it and has the ability, that's great. What's a turn off for me is when somebody says, look at my amazing system and they don't give full disclosure that maybe it took four years and a million dollars to build. If you are that guy or gal that just loves that stuff, that's great. But you don't have to be that. What you have to be is the person that when your car breaks down, you go to the mechanic and they tell you you need a transmission, you have to be able to audit and push back in some way, which is challenging, right? I don't know if I need a new transmission. Maybe I can get a second opinion. But there are ways to know enough to be able to ask the right questions. And in this case, you know, employ your own mechanic to be able to, to get insight into what you're being told. But I think in general, this is a distinct role within the organization that is either a, a reapportionment of an existing leadership role where you give them a bigger percentage of their job description to focus on this, or it's somebody that has a distinct role within the organization. Um, there's a customer of a mutual customer now of uh, Lead Simple and Latchel that I want to give a shout out to. Uh, you might know them, RPM. They're an RPM Valley wide. Uh, Keith and um, uh, one of his team members, Jesus, yes. is literally in the process right now. So totally. he's a team member that Keith hired. Uh, Keith and his wife run the company. And Jesus is sort of sitting there as this champion yes. for a lot of the process building yes. and system building. And they mm -hmm. just implemented Lead Simple. So, yeah. Uh, they 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 they've been working on Lead Simple, mm -hmm. so they didn't like just start with you guys, but um, they follow yes. that model that you're talking about. And it's common to have RTMs, remote team members, in this role. It's um, it's just a different way of thinking, but it's the future. And the big cutting edge organizations that I know are they're absolutely are making this investment. Yeah, and I know Lead Simple is innovating a lot to kind of stay ahead of this, this trend and provide the capacity and capability to do really interesting things system wise, you know, process wise to mm -hmm. keep companies in good condition with more automation, higher labor efficiency, all feeding back to kind of the metrics you track in, in profit coach. Can you give us sort of like a, a highlight kind of teaser into some of the, the innovations you're yeah. leading? Simple. Yeah, I would say that the, the main thing to point out here is that innovation stemmed from the fact that we are hell bent on this one use case. You're a software guy, Ethan, you'll appreciate this kind of somewhat technical distinction between like the objects that you build in software. Objects are just to say, you can have a, a dumb field that has a label that says property, or you could have a smart field that was fundamentally built from the ground up to account for the fact that there is a property and the property has doors and it could be multifamily or single family, it could be HOA, all of the affordances within our technology are 100% focused on single family residential property management. And it can be fit over for multifamily, et cetera. But the, the practical implications of that are things like we import data from all the, the major property management software vendors, and we're slowly rolling out native integrations. But even without a native integration, we automatically suck up all the reports. We make meaning out of them. You can use that to kick off processes inside of lead simple and the way that the interface is built is designed to accommodate a very specific set of processes that are entirely around residential property management 
Um, that's awesome. And I, I think there's a lot of value when you're like very focused on the use case and, um, you know, you, you can multifamily and single family, a lot of platforms, you know, can work for both, but they're sort of distinct enough, at least like high rise is so distinct mm -hmm. from like a scattered site environment where you might not have maintenance on site. You don't have management or leasing on site. You're doing mm -hmm. everything in a true fashion. It is a lot more operationally complex. In some cases you have like kind of property managers running parts of this. Then in some cases you're centralizing certain components, mm -hmm. totally different models. And I think focusing on that's really smart. Um, yeah, there's just one other thing I would add to that. I'd be remiss not to mention that in addition to the way the tech is is built, I answered it on that level. But the other side of it is is just the defaults, right? There are default workflows, there are default templates, and then there are people who will help you do a lot of handholding, as much handholding as you want to build out and customize those things to your business. So you'll never run into a situation where you have a use case of how you want to use workflow for your property management business that we have not already run into and generated a solution for it and can give you feedback on the utility of asking that question in the first place. That's a huge reason why people use us versus other off-the-shelf industry agnostic software. Um, I, I want to touch base on something real quick before we wrap up because you've kind of alluded to this a couple of times in this conversation. And it's something I hear a lot from managers. Um, you know, you talked about having an, uh, people on the team that are implementing systems and finding the right systems and the way these things will work together. You've mentioned, you know, you have easy ways to import data from like a PMS into mm -hmm. Lead Simple. You're starting to look at native integrations. I see a lot of hesitance, particularly from like companies that are starting to grow that might not have a lot of like labor bandwidth hesitations around using multiple platforms. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I, don't, I, I won't make a comment on like the, the value of integrations or not having integrations, but I do want to hear from you, like, like, is it a valid thing to worry about integrating everything so it's all accessible from my Appfolio or my property where my rent manager versus the potential value of having different platforms that are going to be more specialized for different types of work. Like, do you have any thoughts on that? I think it's an entirely legitimate question. And in a perfect world, everything would be built in one system, you know, and you'd be retinal scanned every time you sit down at your computer to, to work, to use it. It'd be that easy and integrated. The reality is you get benefit from disparate systems in proportion to the importance of the use case and the depth of the solve for a, for a point solution. If I'm gonna embrace a point solution out of my main tech, it better be a use case that matters and they better have a deep solve. The reality is your PMS knows and understands that in software they say bitchin' ain't switching. You can complain all day long, but the reality is you ain't porting off because we have your data. And therefore, when we make an add-on, it doesn't need to be, you know, if I make a leasing add-on, it doesn't need to be as good as tenant, tenant turner. 70% is good. And, and you know, guess what? You're going to stay. So then you have to make a decision. How important is this use case where I'm thinking about new software and how deep and unique is the solve? And I think that's what determines these things. But in general, one trend I see is there are more and more companies that are stripping back what their PMS does to get as close to accounting only. And they're building the heart of their ecosystem in other places where they own, control, and can manipulate and bridge the, dat the data for maximi maximal flexibility. Will that be the future? I think that's in some, in some ways up to the PMSs in terms of how much they choose to open up. Yeah. I think if they don't open up, they'll all lose <laughs> to whatever systems like, Hey, we'll just do accounting and we're open. Yeah. The free market view on monopolies is that they can't be maintained because because somebody will always break the complicitude. Someone is going to push, one of those vendors is going to push an open data paradigm and the rest will eventually follow suit. Yeah. Totally agree with that. Well, we've only got a couple of minutes left and I want to make sure people know how to get in touch with you, how to find you, how to learn more about Lead Simple and Profit Coach. So maybe you can tell us 
how do we find you? Do you, do you have a cell phone number for us? What's your preferred? <laughs> yeah, sh shoot me a, an email, jordan at leadsimple.com. That's the best way to get in touch with me. Oddly enough, I actually use WhatsApp a ton. So if you shoot me an email, I can get connected with, with people on WhatsApp. But that's the best way to get in touch. Check out profitablepropertymanagement.com. I, uh, I do bi-weekly podcasts and I also have a newsletter attached to that. Awesome. Jordan, thanks so much for joining. I know we've been trying to set this up for a while. It was an awesome conversation. We went like super deep on some things that I think are going to be really valuable uh, for listeners. We went a little bit philosophical on some things. Uh, awesome conversation. Thanks so much for joining. Uh, it was great to have you here. Hey, man, I enjoyed it. Thank you for adding value and taking the time to do these kinds of interviews. I love doing them, especially with very smart, interesting folks like you. Um, so we'd love to have you back in, in a few months for more updates on like Lead Simple and Profit Coach as they come around. Let's do it, man. And for everyone that tuned in, thank you so much for joining. We do this for you. Uh, so if you want other news on property management growth, scalability, things like that, head to latchell.com, subscribe to our newsletter to stay up to date. Uh, we post upcoming podcasts there, webinars, and even just tidbits and tactics for growth-focused property managers. Thanks, everyone, for joining. See ya. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Subscribe to the podcast to stay up to date. Hit that subscribe button. Give us some love. Maybe give us a five-star review, too, if you like what you're hearing. And I have an ask for you. I'd like you to go to latchell.com and click the book a demo button to schedule time to talk with us. We want to hear about your business, how you've been, how you're growing, how maintenance is going at your company. Maybe we can work together, maybe not, but you won't know unless you talk to us. So go to latchell.com, click the book a demo button. I'm looking forward to talking to you. I know the rest of our team here is. So go do that as soon as you can. Thanks everyone. See you back next week.